Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas. And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Our guest is a cinematographer who has shot countless shorts and features on both sides of the Atlantic. They have lensed iconic shows such as Doctor Who, Sky's A Discovery of Witches, BBC's Chloe and The Wonderful House of the Dragon for HBO. This year she was nominated for an ASC award for episode 8 of House of the Dragon. ASC is the American Society of Cinematographers. Most recently she has become a fully accredited member of the BSC which is the British Society of Cinematographers. Welcome to the director's take Catherine Goldschmidt. Thank Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Now, Catherine, are we going to call you Katie or are we going to call you Catherine? I mean, you should call me what you normally call me, which I guess is Katie. <laughs> I was getting so confused. <laughs> yeah, my so my, confused. my parents just didn't think it through really when they gave me two very different names. But, um, oh well. So our first question, we're going to go very, very basic because this is aimed at everyone from the very beginning of like making the very first short up until being working directors. So at a basic, basic level, what is a cinematographer and what do they do? Okay, so at a basic, basic level, a cinematographer is responsible on a film set for three departments, the camera department, the lighting department, and the grip department. Um. And so, yeah, when you're on set, which I'm sure you guys have discussed, um, you know, it, you, you're sort of, anyway, you're, you're running those departments. You're basically their manager, essentially. Um, but the interesting part and where it sort of like, you know, coincides with what directors might be interested in is that obviously we work very closely with the director, both in prep and then during the shoot as well. But our whole purpose is to sort of translate what the director wants the film to look like into into the reality, right? Into into actually, you know, photographing um, the scenes in the lighting, you know, with the camera, with the lenses. How how the director has communicated to us that they want it to be like. So is that basic enough? <laughs> No, because I think essentially it comes down to mood, right? Like each scene, each scene should have like a mood, and and overall there should be a tone. And you guys are so key in that in terms of crafting the look of something, right? In terms of painting with light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like even when you read the script, right? Even before you talk to a director about how they envision a scene looking, you know, often the script will give you sort of some clues. Like it'll say things like you know, the room is dark or so-and-so can't, you know, see in front of them or, you know, or, or if they don't, you know, communicate specific visual ideas, then there will be an emotional thing that you're trying to get across. And then you and the director will, will decide, you know, together, I mean, based off of really what, what they want to do, um, you know, what that, emotion should look like so you know let's say if it's a horror movie and the emotion is you know for people to be scared then you know then you guys could decide okay well then it should be dark for that reason but 
what's interesting is you can make the opposite choice. Like there's there's often like very common choices, right? Like dark equals scary equals horror, but you could equally say, okay, well, in this movie, it, the scary choice for us is actually that like you can see everything that it's like you know like blindingly bright for whatever reason so that's what's fun about the job is that like even though there's you know audiences today are very accustomed to you know certain visual tropes and certain you know certain like generic customs you can always break with that and and the and the joy of figuring out you know a new way to approach stuff is is you know, is to come up with with how you want to do that, basically. Being a cinematographer slash director of photography, why did you choose that route? Is it something that you were gravitate you gravitated towards from young? What 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 was it? There's actually there's a specific story, <laughs> which is that uh, I was at college um, or university to your um, UK and European listeners, and um, and that. So, so college or university, that's the first time I was ever on a film set that was functioning the way that a film set does. It was a student film set. And so that's when I learned like, oh, there is this person called the cinematographer and, you know, underneath them work, you know, camera assistants and there is a gaffer and, you know, all those roles. Um, so I learned all that. And then I was making my final project and we were basically, yeah, to do the final project you had to write it, you had to direct it, you had to edit it. But for whatever reason, you could not be the cinematographer. And um, and we were shooting on standard 16 millimeter film, no video tab. So I got my friend to be the cinematographer. But of course, I, you know, drew all my own storyboards. And I was very, you know, I was trying to be very involved with what the framing was going to be like, etc. But, but I never... Or at least I don't remember ever putting my eye to the eyepiece to actually see the framing, you know. And so I, so I didn't see it then until I got the film back. And when I got the film back, I was horrified. <laughs> so it was like so disappointing and so depressing to me that like what I had pictured in my mind and what I had drawn on the boards was not what we did. And so I think that experience was just like so traumatizing that combined with the fact that on that particular project I had written it for my sisters to act in and and so anyway I have an older sister and younger sister I'm in the middle and I was you know directing I'm doing air quotes because I didn't know what the hell I was doing but I was <laughs> trying to direct them in a scene and I was explaining to my younger sister like the way I wanted her face to look like as in just physically what yeah. I wanted her to do with her face <laughs> And my older sister was like, no, 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 you can't, you can't tell her that. You just have to tell her like what she's feeling. And I was like, oh God, this is, this is annoying and painful. And I'd rather be, you know, there's a bunch of like behind the scenes photos of me on that set where I have like a light meter in my hand and I'm standing like a million feet away from, you know, the actors. And so I just, I, th I think that you know, that's literally the last thing I ever directed. And I was just like, no, nah, I'm done. That's not interesting to me. And what, what I'm truly interested in is being behind the camera is, you know, controlling where that goes, what that sees, what the lighting is like. And so, yeah. And so then I moved to Los Angeles after I got out of college and, and basically, you know, started working as a camera assistant. Yeah. So you went from there and what we kind of want to know is about how you work with a director specifically. And yeah. 
how do you usually get approached and what do you look for when you decide to to work for a director so how i usually get approached these days is probably through my agent more or less and obviously i get approached it's a specific project they'll often send me the script you know so then you're reading the script you're trying to figure out if you like what's on the page but then as far as whether or how i decide if i want to work with a director i watch you know all of their previous work whatever i can get my hands on and i guess what i'm looking for is just some attention to to the visual language of the piece you know and i mean the thing is like that can mean any number of things so it's quite specific really and i don't know yeah it's not like i have a you know checklist like oh they have to you know like shooting dark stuff or you know what i'm saying like it's it's yeah, it, it's yeah. much more like you know i'm i'm watching whatever they've made at at its face value i mean i'll give you an example like Gita Patel, who I worked with on House of the Dragon, her independent movie that launched her career was a documentary that she made with her uh, brother. And it has horrible cinematography that she did herself. <laughs> did you tell her that during the meetings? <laughs> well, what's funny is when you watch the film, it's a it's a story point. It's like something that they make fun of throughout the film, that like the cinematography is so bad. And when I met with her, you know, I said, oh, I really loved your film, which is true. You know, it's a really funny, fun film. And she was like, oh, did you like the cinematography? So anyway, so what so what was cool about that was just that, like, you know, she had an awareness of it. So sometimes it's not about that, but it's really just like, you know, then and then you get to know just by talking to them, you know, in that first meeting, like what their priorities are in terms of working with mm. you and how and how much they do care about you know your contribution basically and 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 about fostering a sort of collaborative you know working relationship so you know and and Gita's incredibly collaborative and you know and I think I I could tell that just from just from our first phone call, you know, and I think I, I think the other thing is like, you know, you sh- you share sort of references, you share like things that you both gravitate towards, things that you like, and if you feel like there's this sort of shared sensibility there, then that just makes it a lot easier to you know to both be on the same page about stuff, to you know to both talk about. I think we discovered that pretty quickly. And is that something that you do more now? Because obviously early on. To build you, to build your reel, you were doing whatever you could do. Mm. But obviously now, because you are established, you are at a level where you know your jobs are coming through your agents, not from someone just emailing you. Mm. Um, you must have a specific direction in mind in the type of stuff that you want to do and the type of like emotional stories that you want to lens. For me, it's always been just what haven't I done before, you know. And because in that way, you're always, you know, pushing yourself, you're always, you know, flexing different muscles um, and it and and it's always sort of fresh and new so that, you know, that can extend, you know, to different genres. But, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like when I read a script, I, you know, I'll usually read it twice. And the first time I read it is I'm just an audience member, you know what I mean? And I'm just there thinking, you know, does this interest me? Does this move me? You know, do I do I feel for these characters? You know, and if and if the answer is yes, then you know, then it's probably something I want to photograph. And so then I'm going back and I'm reading it again, 
and I'm looking for, you know, visual opportunities. I think there's a sort of spectrum maybe that DPs can sort of fall on with, you know, how story focused they are versus how, I don't know what would be at the other end, maybe how, you know, technologically focused they are or how, um, you know, and I'm definitely, I definitely fall towards the more, you know, the story end of things. So in other words, like, just because it's a comedy, say, doesn't mean I wouldn't shoot. You know, some I think some DPs are like, oh, I don't do comedy. You know, that that's not me. Like, I, I if it, if it was the right comedy, I would totally do it. You know, I think some people might be like, oh, if it's all set in one room, like that's boring. Why would I shoot that? But you know, I I think if the right script came my way, set in all all set in one room, I would you know I would still be interested. You know, so it's it's hard for me to quantify or even sort of qualify specifically you know what it is but um but yeah i think yeah the first thing is just does it does it move me there's definitely a clear link between you know the two pieces of work that i've seen of yours of recent is is chloe and obviously episode eight house of the dragon Mm. and there's definitely a um an emotional language to how both of those are lensed even like on you know, the one that Marcus and I, when we saw on set um, in episode eight, where the Silent Sisters are mm. dissecting, doing an autopsy on uh, Vaymond and the shot of uh, Rhaenys and th- that, that lens that you used. And it just looked absolutely beautiful. Mm. Like so e- e- Even where she's, when she's talking to the maester, you know, just the way that is, it really served what was going on in the story right then. And it, f- it felt like that anyway. It felt like by, by design. You could have put the camera wherever you wanted. But you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I used to, um, let's see, I had a film professor who would say, I think this is what he would say anyway, maybe I'm paraphrasing, but just that like, there is a right place to put the camera, you know, I definitely subscribe to that belief that like, if you're telling this specific story, then there's a specific place to put the camera. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the joy from you know in my job comes from figuring out like what that is um and you know sometimes you can figure it out in prep just by talking to the director about what they you know what they want to get out of the scene um but sometimes you have to show up on the day and just pay attention to you know what the actors are doing and um and you know look for look for those opportunities really but um we'll we'll definitely dig down into the, the craft of being on set soon um but I think whilst we're there, I think it would be quite interesting to hear about the hardest transition for any filmmaker is is how did you go from shorts to to long form? How did you make that work? Yeah, essentially the the the, the arc is that I moved to Los Angeles. I worked for a camera assistant for a couple of years and I worked mostly for DPs or I found myself working for a group of DPs who had all gone to this one film school, the American Film Institute. And so Put together a real shorts I'd shot on the weekend, applied, got in to your program, you know, learned an enormous amount, graduated. And then I literally ran into a director on a train in New York who I had done a summer program while I was still at university. We'd done like a summer class together, um, you know, because I just couldn't get enough of filmmaking during the school year. I had to do it during the summer as well. And um, and he asked me what I'd been up to. And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm about to graduate from AFI. Um, 
And he was like, oh, I, you know, I'm looking for a cinematographer for this feature. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so then I think it was like six months later. And in that interim period, I actually did this very cool um, internship program that the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences sponsored, which was pairing me with a similar program to what you guys did, to be honest, in terms of like getting paid mm -hmm. to shadow. Um yeah. And so I was paired with Alan Queso, ASC, on this NBC show he was doing at the time called Trauma. Um, so I got to hang out, you know, on that. That was at that time, that was the biggest that I'd ever been on. And that was, I think, the first mm. like proper television set I'd ever been on. Um, so that was a great sort of like, you know, bridging the gap from film school, you know, back into the professional realm. And then I went from there and went to New York and shot this. Um, incredibly tiny, incredibly indie feature film um, called Northeast um, on Super 16. But it was the sort of thing where like, you know, I'd done my first feature and of course, you know, I thought like, well, this is going to go to Sundance and then I'll get an agent and then this and that and the other thing. And, yeah. you know, and none of that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then I just, you know, then I just had to Keep going you know you just have to keep going and so yeah there was there's this sort of murky period where i was you know then that that's that's honestly i think a huge number of shorts i shot probably happened in that interim period um as well as i started working more in documentary um which is something i just fell into but you know found really fascinating then i was still sort of you know shooting features was still always somehow the goal and so i did manage to crank out I think like eight more before <laughs> I moved to the UK. <laughs> um, but, you know, the the thing is like, you know, e each one of them had, you know, very slightly higher budgets, you know, very slightly like more named cast, whatever, whatever. But still, you know, nobody has really seen or heard of them. And <laughs> and so that just makes it that much harder to, you know, to, to get to the next level or whatever. But um, I moved to the UK for, you know, completely non-professional, personal reasons. Uh, my husband's English. And um, and I basically had to start all over again because, you know, certainly if nobody had, you know, seen these movies I was shooting in the U.S., like, definitely nobody, it, like, at least in the U.S., nobody had seen the movies, but they could be like, oh, you worked with this director, oh, this actor, you know, and it's this sort of community, yeah, right? Yeah, pace things together. Yeah, but here yeah. it was like, who are these people and what is this and... <laughs> so you know so then so then you start again basically so when you came here did you have to do much of starting again or were you, were you just kind of like doing shorts and meeting people and then you had the interest anyway what, what yeah was that like? so basically like the, yeah it, it, it was definitely a transition period where I was still where I where I did have to start again I did have to you know shoot more shorts you know just to meet people etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the same time I didn't want to close the door on what I had begun in the U.S. So I would go back to the U.S. at least once a year, if not sometimes more, to do to do jobs mm -hmm. there as well. I did four more features in the U.S., but after moving here, that is what happened. So I guess I moved sooner than I thought or had shot less features than I thought when I moved over here. So, yeah. That is a lot of work here. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> like, I'm thinking about DPs that I know, DPs that you know as well, Mar uh, Marcus from... Like NFTS, they don't do eight features before getting into the industry. Do you know what I mean? No, they they leave film school and they've 
they get agents, some of them. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> um, it, it is a different... It can happen that way. It's different in the U.S. I mean, my impression when I moved here was that, you know, like, on the one hand, it's so fantastic to have, you know, state-funded filmmaking. You know, that doesn't exist in the U.S. whatsoever. So, on the one hand, it's wonderful to have that kind of support. On the other hand, what I see that doing is that people sort of think like those are the only channels available to me and and they spend the time in the schemes, you know, doing all the passes and the development and whatever to try to get, you know, that precious BFI funding or whatever it is. Yeah. And and you know, and the truth is the BFI is only going to fund, you know, so many films a year. Um, whereas in the U.S., there isn't that. There's not a pipeline. You know what I mean? People, if they have a movie they want to make, they're just going to beg, borrow, and steal, and and do whatever it takes. You know, like like one of the features I shot, the director literally just like took out eight credit cards, and and that's how that's how she ended up bonded. You know, <laughs> like and that's. I hope they got their money back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and then and then <laughs> and then they got their money. Exactly, exactly. But this is you know this is the thing that I think it's I think it's a more um, American sort of cultural thing that you just like go into huge amounts of debt for your art and like not think twice about it. And and I don't I don't know I don't really see people doing that here so much, <laughs> whatever reason. Yeah. That's a terrifying thought. So how how did you eventually land your first was it was it a TV gig here or was it a feature you did first? How Yeah, so no, I to to like? this day I have not shot a British based feature. I would love to do that actually, but I have not done that yet. Um so yeah, so T V is where I've now been working um since uh I guess twenty eighteen was my first like official television job. Um, although I had shot, you know, like Channel 4 does these little like pilots or, you know, I had done sort of like TV adjacent work. Here's, here's a scheme for you to make a film and get a small TV credit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, yeah. but no, my actual first proper TV job as, you know, main unit. Oh yeah. Cause I also had done some second unit and this and that, but my, but my first main unit, um, director of photography job was doctor who actually which was a huge a huge job to get yeah so um so that came about as as these things usually go it's like you know multiple different things sort of aligning but basically um you know i i'd shot some second unit for a director and a dp who both knew this director who was you know starting off leading doctor who and so they recommended me to him and yeah, and at the same time, I think they were contacting, you know, blanketly agencies looking for looking for people to kick off. And that was series 12, I guess. Yeah. And I just, you know, we just had a great interview that just sort of like went on and on and on. And 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 yeah, they offered me the job and I couldn't I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was just, <laughs> you know, that's a great was, one to get as your first good. one. Too. Yeah. yeah. No, Doctor Who cool. is, is, is massively regarded in England. Massively. Yeah. Yeah, no. And if you get that cool. as a as a director or a writer or even a, a DP, it's like they don't they don't hire wishy washy people. Yeah, no, it was very cool. It was very cool, and um, and then you know, and it was also cool because like you know, people watch it in the states as well. So it was something that you know I could call my parents, my friends, they would know what I was talking about. <laughs> what was that? Um, 
jump like for you, Katie. Like, you know, going from doing indies, you know, if it's someone's credit card that they're maxing out and, you know, it's chaotic, but then obviously TV is still chaotic, it's high pressure, but obviously there's a structure, there's a, there's a, 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 a sort of like a, a rigid workflow and pipeline. How did you sort of like transition from that to that? What was it like? Yeah, I mean, I remember sort of like calling up a bunch of people, you know, who had worked on the show before to be like, you know, what's it going to be like? And I remember talking to um, Susie Lavelle, who had shot the show, you know, some years prior. And she was like, you're going to absolutely love it. Like, it means that when, you know, when you shoot TV and you say like, oh, I need to like black out this entire location, people just say like, okay, you know, instead of like, really? Like, do you have to do, you know? So, no resistance. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, th- there's always resistance That's what you at told. something. Yeah. But you know what I mean? There's just a <laughs> yeah. certain, you know, if you go from shooting indies or shorts or whatever, where it's just like every tiny decision has this like massive sort of budget, you know, repercussion that you're always trying, you know, that people are always questioning you about and you're always sort of fighting to have the kind of bare minimum tools then suddenly you have more resources and people aren't you know they're not sort of like making you defend every single little blackout you need to do or whatever it is so that immediately is feels liberating as far as though the sort of structure and the hierarchy i mean to be perfectly honest going from shooting independent features that are director-led to shooting television in the uk is a much easier transition because it is still for the most part a director-led medium you know we had a showrunner on doctor who you know he he was involved but he was also you know the head writer was that russell t davis at that time no at that time it was chris chibnall so you know so chris was definitely you know present and interested in the choices we were making and yet he also had to write all the scripts himself basically <laughs> so you know and and he was like also finishing up post for the season before and so he was a man spread incredibly thinly and um you know and my director jamie stone i think was really like trusted to do a lot oh jamie stone. yeah yeah i know yeah, who he is yeah. he's he's nfts yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's okay. wonderful and he's somebody you guys who like i watched every short he'd ever made before my interview and i went in and i could just genuinely you know gush about you know how they looked and how you know fun yeah. his camera choices like, were skyborne is so impressive yeah, mm, yeah. Like, very good so vfx heavy it's like it it created a whole world it's he's like wolf. such a it's amazing yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's such like a visionary that's dude. the thing yeah. and you can just tell watching his films like what an imagination he has and yeah so i think that's that's partially why we hit it off because it was just like oh you know you're definitely somebody who I want to be working with so but he you know and like and it was a big job for him and you know and he hadn't done it before either but you know but he was trusted and therefore I was trusted and yeah there was I don't know it was it was a very good experience basically there it was it was it was great we're going to dig into craft a little bit in really practical sense. So say you've just gotten a TV job. It could be Doctor, it could be House of the Dragon. What do the first conversations with the director look like? And from there, what does prep look like for you? And how do you work with the director? Um, so if you have scripts, and that is a big if, 
in television. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you're definitely starting with the script and, you know, you're doing a page turn together, say, and you're just going through the scenes and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to envision them the way the director does, you know, and different directors have a sort of different pathway to doing that. You know, somebody like Jamie Stone, like he, he would have specific shots in his mind that you would describe to me, you know. Um, and not just describe, but say like, oh, do you think we should do this with like a wire descender rig or, you know what I mean? He was, he's, he's much more sort of technical working with somebody like Gita. It's very much about, you know, character and emotional arc and making sure like we understand, you know, what the beats are of every scene. And, and so, yeah, so, so you definitely want to go through the script, you know, if you have them <laughs> and then it's either about you know, finding the right locations or, you know, which was definitely true on when I did Doctor Who, we were, um, we shot half the time in South Africa, which was quite exciting. And we, and we were using, we were using South Africa to be everywhere from like Peru to Madagascar to an alien planet. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely <laughs> mad. And, wow. um, but, you know, but House of the Dragon last year, as you guys know, for our episode was mostly studio based. And so then what we did, because again, like, um, actually we started so late, a lot of the sets were built and that meant that we could actually, you know, go to the set and, and, and really just try to picture, you know, how we're staging the scenes here and, um, you know, and, and with Gita, she was very like, you know, well, what angles haven't people done before and, and how can we, you know, change the space to make it specific to our episode? And, and that was really exciting. You know, we didn't have that sort of time jump between when episode seven ends and episode eight begins. So we could justify, you know, changes. And in fact, not just justify them, but the, the script asked us, you know, the script said yeah. things like, and Allison is in charge now. And so now there's signs of the seven everywhere. And, you know, and, and this was conversations that I would have with Gita, but also with Ryan and Miguel about, you know, how now that Allison's in charge, it should feel, you know, more austere and colder and, um, you know, and, and then once, once you have some of those ideas, then, then you're drilling down to get specific about, okay. And, and what does this look like in terms of how I'm lighting it, what production design is doing with, you know, either different elements or, this and that anyway you go from there but i can i'm sure i'm rambling at this point what i'm taking away from that anyway is this is the, the building blocks of what it is, is is it all comes down to emotion really doesn't it of, of what I've, and the story you're trying to tell uh within each given scene it was a bit of a luxury actually because i've with this being the first season of the show on house of the dragon like i think the other directors they couldn't prep in the same way because they were kind of just imagining totally well and we're we're in that boat now that we're doing season two and we're starting at the beginning it's it's like that for us now too. So yeah, it's, it is different depending on, you know, whether you have the physical spaces there or not. Yeah. How do you compare shooting in a studio compared to shooting on location? Like, cause I know they each have their pros and cons. Uh, just intrigued to get your thoughts on that. I think television, if they can afford studio shooting, they like it because it's much more predictable. And if it's more predictable, then you can just schedule more scenes with more confidence to, you know, to occur, you know, bang, 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 bang. Whereas, whereas when you're out on location, you know, you're at the mercy of 
the weather and, you know, so many other things like crowd controls in place or if this or that, you know, there's just many more variables and therefore, you know, it's not as predictable as far as, you know, completing because, you know, television is all about just complete, 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 you know, make your day. So, you know, so when you have a studio, you know, you can, you light it and then it, then it's, then it's like that for <laughs> as long as you need it to be, you know, whereas obviously, yeah, the sun goes in and out, comes up and down on location and you can run out of time to do what you need to do. But yeah, as far as what the be- what benefits me in either place, um, I shooting on a studio, I think for me, it's much more, to be honest with you, it's much more exciting to be involved as early as possible because then you get to work with the production designer to say, you know, and, and this is what I get to do this year is like, oh, well, have you thought about putting a window there? You know, have you thought about like yeah. a camera trap there? And to be honest, like, even though we started late last year, they were very accommodating with those types of requests anyway. You know, like we got to move walls around and um, and and cut new holes for to put cameras in and that kind of thing. I think I remember um, Paddy's bedroom um, in episode eight because there was no actual place for moonlight to come exactly. through. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. Well, we just we just figured in in that instance we figured, oh God, we're in this room you know, for like at least four scenes in in the space of an hour and we want to be able to look in different directions and have moonlight and have depth and so yeah, so we, we did we did change things up, you know, for that reason. With something like Game of Thrones, obviously it's got such a specific kind of look to it. And when you do go on to shows where it's something that's got a specific look on it, you you came in you were gonna be on episode eight. Yeah. You've done Discovery Witches what homework do you do to make sure that you are fitting into that that vernacular? Like, are you looking at camera movement? Are you looking at shot lenses? Are you looking at, you know, how things are lit? What, what is it you're, you're, you're kind of looking out for to make sure that you can fit within that, but also bring Katie to it? Yeah, I mean, everything you mentioned, definitely. You know, we, we watched we watched the dailies. And interestingly, you know, on, on other shows I've worked on, assemblies get released as well on a weekly basis that you can watch which i find you know helpful as well just to see you know how things are being intending to cut together um on this uh on house of the dragon we did not get to watch any assemblies i don't think i think there were a few a few things miguel shared with us from episode seven because he was you know fairly far along with that edit so that was exciting to see those scenes put together but the rest was just dailies, dailies, dailies. But yeah, when you watch dailies, um, which sh- should I say what dailies are? To be honest, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please, yeah. So, so dailies or rushes um, is like all of the footage that gets shot in a day, basically. Um, so that's why they call it dailies. So yeah, so everybody had already been shooting on the show before we got there, and so there was this huge back catalog of literally Mm. raw footage that had been shot which we yeah we poured through basically to see you know yeah to to see both you know how how scenes were being lensed how the camera was moving how things were being lit you know like it Gita and I were both you know very eager to know if there were rules when we started on House Mm. of the Dragon and we asked both Miguel and Fabian and Fabian said and this is Fabian Wagner, who's the lead DP. Fabian said, nope, no rules. 
<laughs> um, and 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 Miguel did rules come in and, later? And, and Miguel was like, Miguel had a few more things that he he wanted us to try to do, but but to be honest with you, it was yeah, it was it was fairly open. And yeah, as far as the rules coming in later, yeah, we shot our first day with you know no rules. And um and then and then we got <laughs> then we got some notes. And then we were like, Okay, yeah. cool. We won't we won't do that or that or that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things you kinda of need to know. And I think um I think what is interesting, because I guess like as a working if say like if me and Oz got a job, we're not gonna be lead director straight away. So we like to be on like a second or third block. And with that we might be shooting on sets which have been um already constructed and been shot in before. So I think that point about seeing what's come before you and seeing how you can do things differently whilst kind of retaining what you want to do of a scene is is an important note uh, for people out there who are who are making that transition to long form as well because that's something to keep an eye on because um, you might look at a scene and look at a setting be like cool there's a great angle here and chances are other people have come in and seen that great angle as well um <laughs> so it's something to keep an eye that on. was totally our experience is like Gita would be like oh and what if we put a camera up there and then i would be like okay cool and then i would go through all the dailies and then i would show her oh you mean like this like like somebody already did <laughs> like no um so anyway i mean you you have to you have to you have to make the episode your own really because you know because they hired you to do it and you know and yes you have to have an appreciation for you know for what the whole is and obviously you know on house of the dragon which was different than say doctor who or or anything else i'd worked on the, the show owners ryan mcgill were incredibly involved so you know so we we were often you know seeking their approval and you know showing them storyboards and you know and and concepts and you know pitching them ideas I don't think an audience, an audience, a director or, you know, other people realise, like, not even just the pressure, just, like, what it must feel like for you as the DP and for Geeta as a director when you've got the execs, you shoot in a scene that's an ensemble scene, that, that you know, the, 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 the big scene in... I mean, you lot had bloody two, two massive ensemble scenes in episode eight, mm. but the one where they were around the table when the when Viserys comes for the last time with the family, and then you've also got both showrunners in the room, you've got the execs in the room, what does that feel like? You know, to me, it feels like, you know, a school example when you've got all the deputy heads and you've got the head teachers and principals in, you know, watching you teach like, oh shit, like, I can't, I can't screw up. What's that pressure like? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it's like. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I, like, I love my job because if I don't want to talk to actors, I have a place to hide. And if I don't want to talk to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can always be hiding somewhere. Whereas Gita, yeah. you know, like, there's no place to hide, basically. If you're a director, you're, you're out there. And, um, but she handles that very well, you know? And, um, and so, you know, I mean, the main thing for us is like, you know, we had a plan. Like we, we, we had been, we had been prepping to shoot those big scenes. Those big scenes were scheduled at the tail end of the schedule, and the schedule, as you guys know, it did keep pushing and pushing. And um, so we were very well prepped and very ready, such that you know, when there were changes on the day, which there were, uh, you know, it's funny. Like I was saying, oh well, you know, it's more predictable when you shoot on. Um, on in a studio but you know but the actors and what they are doing is is the <laughs> is the unpredictable yeah. thing and so yeah. 
you know, so we had a lot of that to to work with. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I think that's when those personalities, you know, the execs, et cetera, when they show up because, you know, because we have this many principal cast there and and at this late stage in the game, everybody knows, you know, what those personalities are like and, you know, and what, you know, what they what they might <laughs> get away with. If You know what I mean? It's, it, it helps actually yeah, yeah, to yeah. have some adult presence in the room sometimes. Um, so people on their best behavior. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and they were great with us. Like they would they would show up and check in and then, you know, and then and then once they saw it was all in hand, then generally they would leave us to it. You know, it was it was good. But yeah, I mean, it it definitely is just as you described um, uh, is like, you know, all the teachers are there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's one of the 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 things with I think why people are reluctant to work with like early career directors that's why it's making that transition is so hard is because a lot of the job is dealing with that pressure and mm. if you're coming from shorts land where you've got no eyes on you and there's no expectation really and you're in charge of every single decision to then have people breathing down your neck if you're not ready for that you can be resistant to it or you can kind of like be a bit bullshit or, or something or too defensive and that's what the process is, right? You're you're a midwife and remaining flexible and knowing that whatever you have in your head, it can be changed either like it can be taken out of your hands or not. And even as simple as an actor wanting to stand up rather than sit down in a scene or even if they face the other way, <laughs> like that can throw out your entire plan of how you're going to shoot a scene like immediately yep. like there and then. Yep. Um, and you can't, you have to do that on the fly because chances are the actor's not really going to be thinking or having a conversation about that until you're there on the day figuring it out. Last thing on that, you, you know, you, you spoke about Gita and how she kind of like managed that, and and I just wanted to just talk about well, not how talk about, it, but just mention it that that leadership quality in directors is important, mm. Katie, right? Yeah, very, very important. Yes, definitely. Yeah, no, which is outside of the craft. It's a different thing to from craft. It's it's separate to that. It it is. It it definitely is. But it you know it's 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 such an integral part of the job, you know, like if you just have the movie in your head, but you can't communicate that to other people and you can't physically lead them in the direction you want to go, then, you know, then, then it will only ever stay in your head. Really. It can't be realized. So yeah, you have to, you have to come up with, with best practices really for, for how to communicate and how, and how to, um, get people to do what you <laughs> what you want them to do you know and it's interesting like you know because we did always have writers on set with us um if not showrunners there were all there was always at least one writer and um and that that's a very american you know television thing to do that wasn't that wasn't true say on doctor who um so on the one hand it's amazing because because they you know know this the script and the sort of genesis of you know certain lines of dialogue you know if they if the actors have questions or whatever like it's so useful to have you know the actual person there who can rewrite something if they need to or whatever but they will have notes right they'll have notes which they give to Gita and Gita has to figure out or you know the director has to figure out how to take those notes and communicate those to the actors and and not just not just as a Sort of intermediary but like you know really to believe them and and translate them you know within the framework of 
of how they want things to go. So, um, so that I think is such a specific and and terrifying skill, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, because um, writers are like, I mean, writers are obviously intelligent filmmakers themselves, but it's a different practice putting something on a page and having four different intentions of how you imagined it being done, and the difference on the day is that you need to communicate a very clear simple idea to an actor and the language is very different in how you communicate that mm. so an actor might want this result and this to happen because it leads on to this 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 and this yeah. and they on the day it, whether it's an exec or the writer they'll come up to you and say that whilst you're mid-take because <laughs> the first take is always bad and it might be like oh this isn't supposed to be like this it's supposed to be like this because of this 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 then you need to under all that pressure within like 30 seconds then go up to the actor and be like cool so what you did there is is great but i think if we try it this way then we'll kind of see what happens and then if not we'll go again and and then you get a different performance and then the the showrunner will either be happy or not and then you kind of move right and that happened a few times i remember it happened with Gita. i remember seeing it you know a note was given opposite to what the way it was played but she handled it so well because that's the director's job that's the job yeah, yeah. which you can't account for until you're there and you see it and um, and you're, you you get experience in learning it. So to so to move on from that to creating a step like a look for a show which is has like established rules somewhat with House of the Dragon and that Game of Thrones existed before it. Um, you then worked on Chloe before that, I believe, which is a contemporary show, um, and it has its own sort of like sensibilities and look. And you made that in conjunction with um, Alice Seabright, who was the writer creator and lead director as well. So how did you go about crafting? that look um, and setting the rules um, and yeah, building the, vi the visual language for that show. Well, yeah, that was a very wonderful experience for me because Alice is somebody who I'd known for years and we'd done a very small sort of music video slash short film project together. And, um, and I worked with her partner as well. And anyway, you know, because she was the writer, the creator, the showrunner and the lead director, just you know it it really felt like we were making a film together because there was really just her you know um like we you know we we did have an exec producer but really like the the creative buck basically stopped with alice which was which was amazing you know so much um freedom so as far as how we went about crafting the look we just started by pulling you know references basically to to films that you know that we liked that were similar in tone or mood or or sometimes just, you know, in plot. But, you know, like The Talented Mr. Ripley was a huge touchstone for us. You know, it had a lot of similarities as far as um, the plot went, but also just in terms of, you know, how it was shot and, you know, certain compositional techniques. Like, basically, I think the other reason why Chloe felt um, so much more like a film to me is that it is that we were following one character you know and 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 in my experience tv is about multiple characters and all these you know following all these different storylines and plot lines and whatever and it's a much more sort of like singular story that you're telling you know when you only have an hour and a half two hours in a film to do it so so it felt to me because it was so focused on this one character and seeing everything through her perspective it felt a little bit more like a film in that way and so we could be incredibly subjective with our choices you know because we just knew everything was was you know going to be told 
from her experience. And so, yeah, so that's how we made the choices. It was just like, you know, how does Becky see the world? How is she functioning in the world? You know, it like, is she, you know, because she's this character that is like Matt Damon's character in the talented Mr. Blue. Um, you know, she's a, um, a chameleon of sorts, or, you know, she, she, she tells lies, she puts on, you know, false personas. Um, and so, and so we basically just developed a language, a visual language for that, for when she was sort of like playing her sort of alter ego role, what that would look like, as opposed to, you know, when she was at home with her mother. So, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was like, there were all these very rich sort of visual threads, um, that, that we got to, that we got to sort of craft and, and, um, and it was, yeah, it was very, very exciting. And it was it was um, single camera, right? Um, and then sometimes you use two, whereas on Thrones it's minimum of two, mostly three, and sometimes four. Yeah, <laughs> what's that like? Yeah, and, and making yep. sure that your lighting's not flat, and making sure that you know everything works and looks as like it's been shot on one camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that was obviously a change <laughs> to go from to go from yeah to go from like you guys said you know like single characters single camera you know subjective viewpoint you know we did a ton of handheld in chloe as well which i operated myself to then in house the dragon like you say it's multi-camera there's very little handheld and in those situations i actually feel like i i can't operate in those situations because if i'm if i am behind a camera then i have no control no ability to really monitor what the other cameras are doing so yeah so in that instance you know you are you know i'm positioning myself on the set as close to the director as possible but still with the git you know i'm i'm seeing what all the cameras are seeing and i have all the operators on you know on headset so that so that we can all you know talk about what they're doing so you're literally t- tweaking it there and then. I, I'll I'll break it down, I guess, from... So so you do a blocking, then after the blocking is done, then that's when you want to be figuring out, first and foremost, the camera positions. And, um, and when you're working with multiple cameras, you definitely want to start with a camera. <laughs> um, because, because it gets very confusing very quickly if you start compromising. So yeah, the cameras are lettered, right? So A is typically like the hero shot, you know, the shot that like you cannot live without, it's on the shot list, it's of the hero character or whatever. And so you want to set that one up first because all the other cameras have to have to work with that camera and you don't really want to do it the other way around. Like you don't want to be compromising a shot of Patty Considine who's doing all the talking in the family dinner or a shot of, you know, one of the kids who has two lines or whatever. So once you know what the A camera is doing, then you can sort of plot in your mind and well, and physically because you're there and doing it. <laughs> um, but in, in prep, I'll say that actually we did a lot of plotting in our mind first. So, you know, we tried to sort of work out this math puzzle before we even arrived. Um, but then once you're there and you actually see, you know, how the scene goes, then you can say, okay, at the same time as I do Patty, I can put another camera here to do Matt. I can put another camera here to do so-and-so. So you position all the cameras, then you light for them. But believe me, like I, and you know, they, and they, they're not, they're, they're typically 
you know, typically it's like I'm lighting for a sort of like 90 degree wedge and I can put the cameras anywhere on that 90 degree wedge. That was my approach anyway, or I think both of the four camera scenes that we did just because that's how I could, yeah, that's how I could maintain control of the, of the directionality of the lighting and, and keep it, keep it looking, you know, how I wanted it to look. That's great. Yeah. Cause we, we spoke to Alice a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about, well, there was one scene, I think in episode three, where I think Becky, I don't know if she's Becky or she's Sasha in that moment, but yeah. she's in the bath and she just said, we just needed to get it. Okay, he just grabbed the camera and just jumped on top of the back and just got the shot. Just standing there over. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see you do that on House of the Dragon. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see the bar shot. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there is something like so thrilling about being behind the camera yourself, about having that sort of intimate connection with, you know, the director and the lead actor such that you can just, you know, if you're if you're falling behind or or even when you're not you just you know you just find what the shot is and when you you know when you're at more of a remove because you have you know the operator involved or multiple operators then you know then there's a certain amount of you know it's it's a speed thing it's a flexibility thing and um and it's a little bit just relinquishing you know some some creative control because you're not you know physically behind that camera framing up the shot but um you know, but but all the operators who I work with are, you know, they're very receptive to being, you know, to being told, oh no, can you pan a little right? Can you pan a little left? You know, a little less hundred, you know, like those, you know, that that that's that's the benefit of being in my position. Unlike, you know, when you talk to an actor, you can't just say talk faster. You know, you have to like come up with the reason. But when you're talking to a camera operator, you can literally just be like, pan left, more, 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 stop. Because <laughs> I guess we've like. um the higher up you get, the further it is you get away from being like the filmmaker you was in a sense, in terms of like, I think when you're starting out in shorts, you have to do so much and you kind of like, you're really in it and you feel like you're really making something. But the higher up you get, it's more about like, it becomes more like a heist, right? Like you create a plan, you try to execute the plan, shit goes wrong, but then you find a way through it. It's it's that same sort of thing. Um, and I was going to ask about... Um, what your relationship with a director looks like on the day quite broadly what are the sort of conversations that you have um and do you sometimes suggest tweaks to the actors blocking and things like that to the director to change things um yeah if you could talk to me about that yeah definitely i mean you know if if we've had an adequate amount of time to prep a scene together then i will definitely be trying to understand how the director envisions the blocking before we get there on the day. So hopefully we'll have had a conversation beforehand. Sometimes sometimes you don't based on anything, based on how late the scripts are or how behind you are in other areas of prep or just that the director wants to just see what they do, you know, and doesn't want to, you know, commit to anything. So, so hopefully you'll have some sort of idea before you get there. And then when you actually block it with the actors, then you know that's the first time you really sort of see it for real yeah and i'll and i'll if if i see something that i think is you know either could be better in terms of camera or yeah i mean i i I try to give the note that's like it would be better if instead of like can they just not do you know you have to have the solution in mind really when you go and suggest something rather than just like 
this part doesn't work for me. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but yeah, I'll take the director aside, you know, and and say, you know, do you think actually they could do it like this because it, it would make my life better? And sometimes they're like, cool, yeah, I can see that. And then they're like, no, 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 that would wreck it for this or that reason, you know. And then whatever it is, then you then you figure it out. I mean, sometimes it's the actors who will push back and say, you know, no, no, I wouldn't do it like that. And so then you try to roll with it, basically. Is it dependent on a director, how much of that say you have, whether you, you know, you, you can, obviously you plan for a change if you planned and the different directors allow you to like suggest tweaks to blocking or whatever? I think every director I've worked with, I don't know. I mean, I like, honestly, blocking is like, it just, it affects what I can do with lighting and camera so hugely, so directly, like blocking is everything. I just can't, I can't imagine, you know, even in my sort of worst experiences with directors, like I, I, I never felt like I couldn't suggest a change to block in like, you know, I mean, the worst that they say is no, you know, the best relationships are just where, you know, they, they trust that you're always, you know, coming to the scene from, you know, from I mean, you're coming to it from your perspective, right? So that's why when I say like, oh, to make my life easier or difficult, like it's, it is like that, but it's uh, when there's like true trust, then, you know, then, then it's, it's all one team, one dream kind of a thing. You know what I mean? And they know that what I'm trying to do with the cameras and the lighting is, is what they want, you know? And so it's not just like, let me mess up your scene and your blocking for my own nefarious reasons. It's all you know, it's all for the good of the <laughs> of the show. One of the things that really kind of like threw Marcus and I um, when we went on the Game of Thrones set was obviously the fucking scale. It was just mm. insane. Yeah. But also just seeing like cranes and dollies just on standby for over a year Fair. and the grip teams attached <laughs> to that. What was that like for you to, to have those kind of storytelling toys at your sort of like disposal just like yeah you know what let's get that let's get that bit of that bit of that fucking do you know what i mean like what was that like to go from like shooting apes to indies where it's someone's maxed out credit card and you're probably just on sticks and then handheld to then having like fucking six grips attached to like a 50 foot crane yeah well i mean it it's obviously very cool to have um the tools uh, as we call them tools not toys yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's very it's very good to have you know, the tools at your disposal to use whenever you need. Um, but that being said, you know, it's it's like every shot is not a crane shot. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to sort of plot when do we need the world to expand or this particular kind of move or, you know, so that it's so that we're not just doing it willy nilly because we can, but we're doing it you know, we're doing it at specific times for specific reasons. You know, it's it's still, you know, there's the right place to put the camera. Um, so... Because the, the shot of the series, I think it was, where he dies and uh, y- you guys had, uh, had had a scaffolding thing erected in the centre of the Red Keep and... Um, and then there was a somehow crane. put a giant crane on yeah, it. Yeah, crane on top. <laughs> because story-wise, it mattered that that was that type of shot. Yeah. And, yeah, um, it was there right. for ages. It was, I think it was a Saturday morning that was shot on a Sunday. I can't remember. It was on a weekend. I remember that scene was shot. Um, and I remember we, me and Marcus went in and we were like, bloody hell, look at that. That's just in there. Like, you just built that in there. They're going to stick a crane on top. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that was we talked about that shot a lot, um, and and you know, and everybody, yeah, it, it's funny. Like, uh, what what is what is also true is like the the bigger the show, the more experienced people you have around you. You know, so everybody sort of has an opinion about how you should do things. <laughs> so, so a few people were trying to convince us that we ought to do that as a wire cam rig, and Gita and I were like, no. It's not, it's not a wire cam shot. We definitely want to have the control of, of it being on a crane. You know, we want to start with a composition and end with a, you know, it's not, not wire cam. So anyway, so many discussions about that and just the logistics involved, like you guys are saying about like how to get a crane into a place, but nobody had thought to put it before. But, you know, but once you have people sort of on side with you about that, you know, that everybody is, is is working hard to make it happen and, you know, adjusting the schedule accordingly and this and that. And yeah, I mean, but then how it got used in the edit is obviously not, that wasn't our original intention. It's cut up, isn't it? Because it's a really long shot. It's a really long shot. Um, and the, the original, I'll just say the original intention was it was a pullback that we wanted to play mm. out at the end of the show. So in other words, you'd see the king die um you know in close up and then after he has died then it's like a you know and the credits roll kind of a shot to just to just sort of show that he's died you know alone you know with the with the sort of specter of uh, that model that he was building and and you know and to really like I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it you know it was the end of our episode, so this is how we wanted it to go out in the in the final version, right? Because it's not just the end of our episode; it's it's the end and the beginning. It's it's part of this larger mm. whole. They repurposed yeah. the shot, you know, because it just it was less like this is the end of the story, but more like if we cut to black after his close up, then you know you'll tune in again next week, and you know, and there's more, there's yeah. more coming. So, you know, so they repurposed it, but, but it's, it's good. It's still in there because it's still, you know, even though it, yeah, they, they reversed it. I think it, they sped it up a little bit, you know, it's a different shot, but it still gives you this sort of different perspective on his experience, you know, because you have just seen him like surrounded by his family and, you know, and where that family dinner scene ends is with him, you know, thinking that he's sort of solved his problems and that he's bridged some gaps and that people have come together mm. in this in this way and then you know to see him in his cold dark bedroom alone dying it's like you know we wanted that sort of visual contrast basically so i still think you know I, i'm still glad that it's that it's there it's just a different a different purpose with tv um and even working within studio systems that's the sort of thing that can happen as when you're a director is that you can create the perfect sort of symmetry in your head of how the visuals are going to play out and each shot's going to follow on to the next but ultimately when it's part of a, a whole and it gets taken to the edit and you have kind of d- delivered your director's cut showrunners or whoever else execs and stuff they will alter things around move things around for pacing reasons and reason which you reasons which you can't possibly really afford of because you're thinking of a singular uh, point of view so um yeah, it's it's the sort of thing to be wary that that can happen, and that is just what the process is essentially, isn't it? That's where your coverage has to come in, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. On, 
on, on that scene in, in your episode, um, Katie, Marcus, if you remember, Alison com, comes in when Aegon's naked in the be- in bed and she's like, you, you know, you, you need to wake up or whatever it is. And because you'd, you'd shot the coverage, Miguel was able to switch how the director's cut had edited that bit. Yeah. Um, and it was it was really interesting. Change the perspective to, yeah, of the scene. Yeah, just change the perspective right? of the scene because he had overview of the whole. Him and Ryan had overview of the whole. You know, the, the momentum of what that looked like across the ten episodes and, and where we were at that point. And it was so important to have those multiple scene entrances and coverage that mattered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that um, he definitely you know has us do. We do we do it how how she sees it, and then we make sure we have other options. <laughs> so I think we've got one last final question, right, Oz? Yeah. Um, what what scene are you most looking forward to shooting in season two of House of the Dragon? <laughs> As if I can tell you that. <laughs> you guys should come. Can you come back and uh, and do a set visit? It'd be cool to just pop in yeah. and yeah, see yeah, what's going on. Yeah. See, see how the gang's quite, getting on. Quite difficult to get past security now, but um, yeah, it just we didn't, sure we, didn't get to see the, uh, we didn't get to see the scripts of ep- uh, season two, but we were we, we we spent quite a bit of time seeing what was going on in the writers' room, and we would read the walls as well. Yeah. We were there, um, so yeah. it's going to be exciting for the audience, definitely. Definitely, definitely, very exciting, and that is all I will say about that. <laughs> And the final part of the show, which we do, is a nugget of the week. Okay. We essentially, because we we consume so much stuff, like podcasts, like YouTube videos, and obviously books and all sorts of fun stuff, we we thought we'd throw out um, what's inspired us this week. Do you have something? Do you have a nugget? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I guess. Can one of you go first so I see how it works? And then, and then... Okay, yeah, one of you go first. Sure. Well, yeah. well, mine is really simple. Mine's just uh, it's IMDb Pro. So we were, we've been trying to like look up for cast and we didn't know like, well, if you don't have Spotlight, the other thing is if you pay for IMDb Pro and I got a deal on it last year, so I've still got my membership, you can find out all types of like information about people that are on IMDb and you can like contact people from there. It's really, really good. I didn't know like how in-depth it was and contact details were on there. IMDb Pro is good. And there's also like a three months trial as well on that. Yeah, I think there is actually um, at the moment. So I think, say, if you're looking for agents and stuff and you can't see the lists or anything like that, you can literally go on there and figure all that sort of stuff out mm-hmm. when looking at who to approach if you're going to do that in a targeted way. Um, and you can also, I know yeah. this from personal experience, you can also like control what you're known for, you know, that part of IMDb, mm-hmm. like the things that come up mm-hmm. first. You can curate what that is and that. I think it's useful too. And um, my nugget of the week, which is slightly topical, there's a little video, maybe about nine minutes long, and it's with Casey Bloys, who is like the head of HBO. And the title of the video is How Hit HBO Shows Like The Last of Us and Euphoria Get Greenlit. And it essentially talks about what sort of shows they look for, um, why they choose them, what makes a HBO show. And they also dig a little bit into... Um, like the notes process as well and what and how they approach it as a studio um, so it's super short but it's quite interesting just to get that perspective from a studio rather than um, directors who bump up against studios that's cool yeah I'd be interested to know about that um, all right well I was reading an article today about um, this Vermeer exhibition in Amsterdam at the Rijksmuseum um, hmm. and it sounds 
so good that I'm like, how do I get over to Amsterdam before I close it? Which, yeah, something tells me I'm not going to succeed at. But yeah, they've somehow managed to get together. I think the article was saying, like, so he only painted like 36 or 37 paintings in his short lifetime. He died at the age of 43. And they've managed to get together, I think, 28 of those paintings in one place. So um, the article is saying this is like a larger number of Vermeer's than in one place than even Vermeer would have seen in his lifetime. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and anyway, the article is just sort of like describing the paintings in like beautiful detail. And it made me like, you know, go and 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 Wikipedia all of them just to you know, I mean, I'm familiar with some of them, obviously, with the pearl earring and um, the milkmaid, but but there were some others that they were talking about that I didn't have a visual for, but it was, anyway, to read about them and then to look at the image. Anyway, I, I, I found even just that small act to be, to be quite inspiring, but yes, I wish I could see them in person. Amazing. Um, I think I'll be googling that after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And maybe we can and all. If you're in Amsterdam, just yeah, plan a weekend to Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love a little excursion again around Europe. That was fun. Oh my god, that was yeah. one of the that was one of the, the fun parts of being on House of the Dragon, right? We had like for whatever reason because of COVID, actually, I think we had like a little three day gap. That's right. Of yeah. nothing. That's right. Yeah, and we're in Spain, so we just popped to. Lisbon. To, uh, Portugal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> to Lisbon. Yeah, yeah. I know, that was great. Katie, thank you so much for giving uh, up your Sunday evening Pleasure. to speak to Marcus and I on this. Uh, I know that you're super busy right now and it's been a joy to really get under the bonnet of how you think and approach storytelling. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me and um, nice to see you again. This concludes the episode. Next week, we're going to be joined by another exciting guest, I'm sure. Um, so follow the socials to find out who we'll have on. And if anyone does happen to be listening, uh, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large. And we'll do our best to tell you. We want to share this as a resource for you. So please do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast. We're also on Twitter at director's take. Katie, where are you? Oh, I'm at CGDOP on Instagram. And so that's it for now. And until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.